at God's word and allow him to minister to us. This is John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through verse 12. This is God's very word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the waters, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and hearing of it. What they're saying in this is this beautiful picture. It says that this is the first of Jesus's signs. And we're not really studying John, uh, and we're not studying John, but John's purpose, if you remember, uh, and you've studied on your own or other places, was in verse 30, he says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. Basically, John was saying this, I am bringing down and I'm just choosing a few of the stories of my time with Jesus over three years. And the reason that I'm telling you these things and the reason that Jesus did all of these things, all these signs and wonders, was that you would believe in him and that by believing in him, you would have eternal life. He's saying there's a specific purpose to everything that Jesus did. He was intentional about everything. There's a side lesson to be learned there in our own lives, isn't there? We need to be intentional about everything that happens and everything that we do. We don't believe in happen chance and just in, oh, well, isn't that a nice coincidence? But we believe that everything is ordered together and that we should be intentional in that. And Jesus was intentional. And he says this was the first sign that he had. Now, it didn't say it was a miracle. There's a difference between a miracle and a sign. A sign is a designated act or action that was pointing to something else. It was basically saying, I'm doing this, and it was miraculous what he did. But he said, this is a sign to reveal something about myself to you. So when you see and you're studying in the New Testament, it says this is a sign, you need to ask the question, what is it revealing about Jesus? What is he trying to teach us about himself? And that's what we're going to learn today. What's he trying to teach us about himself by going to the wedding feast at Cana, by going there and changing the water into wine? And I'm not going to get lost on whether you should drink wine or you shouldn't drink wine or whether it was grape juice or unfermented. Uh, Those things are nonsense and silliness, quite honestly, as far as this story goes. Jesus wasn't saying, well, this. He wasn't condoning or non-condoning anything else. He was basically saying, I'm going to turn water into wine. And I'm going to do it for a specific purpose. So let's stay focused and find that purpose. So the first thing uh, that we're going to learn uh, in this is that our inadequacies are exposed. 
Now remember the greater context that we're looking at is a community uh, of people who come together to experience joys. This may seem like an odd place to begin, but the first place to begin is our inadequacies are exposed. And the first person who's exposed in here is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary comes along and she says to Jesus, hey, we're going to go to this wedding feast. Now think about it. A wedding here is you get together on a Saturday. You may have a little bit of a get together on Friday, maybe a couple of things earlier in the week or a shower or two earlier in the month. And then you come together and then you have a reception and then you go home, not in first century Judaism. The entire area and region of Galilee would have been coming. This was a huge event. It would have gone on for days, if not for a week or more. And so everybody who was somebody was coming and was invited to this. So Mary uh, was there with Jesus' half-brothers and sisters and with Jesus himself. And they're there, and they're beginning this party, and they're beginning to have this celebration. And what happens was they ran out of wine. And we're going to talk about that in a second as the inadequacies of the bridegroom are exposed. But Mary looks over at Jesus like a good mom would do and says, Jesus... I know you got something special about you, so do something about that. So she obviously knew that he could do something about that. And Jesus looked at her and said, woman, what do I have to do with this? My hour has not yet come. And like any good mother or grandmother, she said, hey, folks, listen to him and do whatever he tells you. I have a wonderful mother-in-law, and, but one of the things that my mother-in-law loves to do is just disregard whatever answer I give to her about a question. Bill, would you like a cup of coffee? No, Sarah, I'm fine. I don't care for any coffee. And then a cup of coffee shows up a couple of minutes later. And my father-in-law looked at her one time and said, Sarah, the boy said he didn't want any coffee. And she said, well, I knew what he meant. (laughs) And so that's sort of what Mary's doing right here. She just glossed over Jesus' rebuttal and said, hey, that's fine, son. I understand all the hour stuff, but go do something. They're exposed over here. Now, Jesus' response is fascinating. It's not disrespectful, it's abrupt, and it's harsh, but it's not disrespectful. He looks at his mother, who brought him into the world, and he says, woman, I can imagine saying that to my mother. I think I probably have tried that over the course of time, uh, and it didn't end well. Husbands, it's probably not a good way to address your wives. Children, it is definitely not a good way to speak to your mothers uh, in that way. But Jesus looked at her and he said, basically, in southern way, Ma'am, what do I have to do with this? My hour hasn't come yet. He basically was chastising his mother and saying, Mom, You are venturing into territory that you are not allowed to venture into yet. You are asking and calling me out to something, and it is not the time yet. So, ma'am, woman, hang on. It's not that time. And then he says something else very interesting in that. Uh, He says this, he goes, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? Now, the Greek, and I'm sure all of you have your Greek Bibles, and you've been studying ferociously this week and know your Greek, there's a little phrase there in the Greek that basically is used five other times. And that little phrase that says, what, do you have, what does this have to do with me, or what does this have to do, is only used five other times, and it's used when Jesus is talking to demons. And it's the demon's response to Jesus. 
when he comes to them and he speaks to them and he says something, I and mean, he says, I'm going to cast you into the pigs and he's going to send them over, they say, what, does you have, what do you have to do with us? He says, the time isn't now. The demons are speaking to him. And it's basically what they're saying is, you don't get to intrude yet into our area. Back off. And so Jesus was using that same language to say to his mother, be careful, don't tread any further. You don't know what you're asking me to do. You don't understand fully what is going on here. You don't understand what a wedding represents, mom. Mom, you don't understand what the inadequacy of a bridegroom represents. You don't understand what a bride who's dressed in white really represents. Mom, you don't understand what wine really represents. So mom, I'd appreciate it if you'd back off. And like every good mother, she says, now listen to my son, he'll tell you what to do. But her inadequacies were exposed because he took her to a theological place that she had no idea about. He said, my hour has not come. Now again, study through the book of John and you're going to find that he uses that phrase, hour, only to speak of his death. He comes and he says in several other places, my hour has not come. That he looks over in John chapter 7, verse 30, and he says, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. John 8, 20, no one, no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. John 12, 27, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. And John 12, 23 and 24 the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So basically, what Jesus was saying to Mary, it was seeming like a non sequitur. He said, Mom, woman, back off. It's not my time to die yet. It's not my time to go to the cross. My hour hasn't come Basically, she, I, I can't imagine what her response was, but I'm hoping that she would go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And she did. That was her response. I have no idea what you're talking about, so go and do what I asked you to do. Jesus, I only understand it at this level. We just need you to get some wine going. Don't you, don't you love Scripture? Wouldn't you have loved to be there next to Mary and go, what do you know about him? Has he done something like this before? Because it says this is his first sign. So it's not that he was at home practicing and that she had seen him doing some of these things as a Messiah in training. It was she knew something about him, but not fully, but she knew something. So her inadequacies were exposed. And then another inadequacy was exposed, and that was the inadequacy of the bridegroom. Now, the bridegroom was the one who was in charge of the wedding, he was the one who was putting the whole thing on, and it was his responsibility at the wedding feast to make sure that the best food was there, that the caterers were set up, that the lighting people were there, that the sound guy was there, the dance floor was set up, and the best and the best of all was there, and there had to be enough wine for everybody who was there, enough of the celebration to come, and he was there, and guess what happened right in the middle of the party, right in the middle of the celebration, the steward came to him and said, <clears throat> excuse me, you have no more wine. Now, they couldn't just run up to the corner store. They just didn't head to Harris Teeter or to Kroger or wherever and say, go pick up a little bit more wine. They didn't have any more. It was out. 
Have you ever been in a situation where you've been fully exposed as having dropped the ball? Totally dropping the ball. And you look around and you want to blame somebody else and you want to blame something else, but at the end of the day, uh, it's you. That's where the bridegroom was standing. He was fully exposed as an inadequate bridegroom. He did not do his part. He did not have the capacity to take care of what he needed to take care of. And so he's fully exposed right in the middle of this very awkward situation. So the thing that we see here is this, that Mary's inadequacies are exposed and that the bridegroom's inadequacies are exposed. And who we have to relate to in the story, and we're going to circle around and bring it all together, trust me, is this. You need to be able to relate to Mary and you need to be able to relate to the bridegroom that your inadequacies are exposed. You do not have what it takes to create and to understand joy or to celebrate or to party or to do anything. You don't understand it fully. You don't know how to do it. And it's got to be exposed first that we have inadequacies. And then he's going to begin to teach us. And the first thing that he begins to teach us is this. After he exposes our inadequacies, what he then does is he shows himself to be the ultimate provider. He basically says, Mom, you're not going to be the ultimate provider. Bridegroom, you're definitely not the ultimate provider because you've botched this thing up. And I'm going to step in now, and I'm going to explain something to you. And so what he begins to do is he comes, and he begins to change the water and the wine. Now, again, I'm not, I don't know how that happened. There have been books written literally on, on what happened. I'm a very simple person. There was water, and by the time it got back to the wine steward, it was wine. Did it change over in the pot, in the vase? Maybe. Did it change in the container that the wine, that the servants were carrying, and then they poured it out? Did it change as it was being poured out? Did it change in the wine steward's cup? Here's my deep theological answer to all of that. I have no idea. And it doesn't matter. All that matters is that it changed. And so Jesus is saying that this miracle took place, that it was transformed from water into wine. But look what he uses. He doesn't just say, go over to those pots over there. Go over to that little cistern. He says, go over to these cisterns, to these places of purification, to the pots of purification. Go over there and come and see that I'm doing something miraculous. See, Jesus is basically saying to us, I'm going to provide for your need. I'm going to meet your need. I'm going to have compassion on an exposed bridegroom. I'm going to have compassion on my mom, even though he could have left her out to hang and out there to dry, right? He could have said, Mom, I'm not going to do it. And she would have said, do whatever he tells you to do. And he would have said, I'm not telling you anything. And she would have been exposed. But Jesus has very, he has compassion even on the immediate need. And so he's saying, though my hour has not yet come, I'm going to give you a pretaste. I'm going to give you a foretaste of what it is. And he goes over to the, to the purification table there. And he says, my hour has not yet come. And he goes to the jars of purification. Now, those jars of purification were not used to drink from. They were used for one purpose and one purpose only, that you would bathe from the water and to purify yourself in the ritual way within the Jewish law, to purify yourself from what? Your earthly uncleanliness? Of course not. From your dirtiness? From your sin. So he goes over and he specifically goes to the jars of purification and he says, fill those jars with water. And then he changes them into wine as if to say, now, if you want to be fully cleansed, 
if you want to be clean from all of your sins, it's not going to be from water. It's not going to be from the old way, the old standards, the old religion. It's not about that. I'm coming in and bringing to you a new covenant in the covenant that's in my blood, that wine is representing of that. And I'm going to fill it and I'm going to tell you this. I am blowing away the old ways. I'm fulfilling them today right here in your midst. I'm doing something different and new, and it's going to blow all of your categories away, and it's going to lead you to a festal joy that you could never imagine or that you could never believe that you could experience, but you can if you believe that it's me who brings you the purification and not that water. That it's not your ritual that does it. And so he goes and he does this. He's giving us a sign. It's almost an acted out parable, as one pastor put it. He's acting it out and saying, this is what's taking place. He says, I'm the ultimate good for you. I'm the ultimate purification for your sins. It's in my hour. It's in my death and resurrection and life that you have a hope of purification. It's in that moment that you become wed to the true bridegroom who's there. He's saying, so quit looking at all of these other things. And you can imagine, you wonder if the people got it. I know we don't hear very often because so often we argue about the wrong things, don't we? Was it wine? Was it not wine? Should a Christian drink? Should a Christian not drink? Where did the miracle take place? And the wine steward didn't get it. The wine steward looked at the bridegroom and chastised him. Said, hey, what are you doing? What you've done is you've given the cheap wine first and the good wine second. That's backwards. Now, there's an interesting implication on that. It's basically this, and this isn't something to do at your dinner parties. Don't serve a bottle of the good wine first and then go get the cruddy stuff afterwards thinking that the senses are a little dulled but that's what was happening here he said usually what happens at a party is you give the best wine first so people go oh what a wonderful glass of wine that we have oh the bouquet and all of this stuff and then you bring in the cheap stuff what jesus is saying is this hey my stuff my wine that i'm giving you is the best it's the best And that's what I'm all about. It's the best of the best is what I'm offering you. Do you realize what you've been given in Christ? So here we're going to explain all this and wrap it up. What does it mean for us? How does it mean that he's now the Lord of the dance and coming together as a community of faith to be a community that is enjoying, joying one another and enjoying our king? Here's what he's basically teaching us. I'm the Lord of the festival. Why did he choose a wedding feast for his first sign? Don't you think it could have been anything else? Really, couldn't it have been anything else? Sure, he's God. He could have chosen whenever and however he wanted to begin to expose himself to the world as the Messiah. And he said, I'm going to do it through a wedding. Because you know what he knew about a wedding? He knew this, my father in heaven, in all of his brilliance, in all of his ultimate wisdom, he said there was no better way in all the world to understand the union between God and man than between the union between a husband and a wife, the bridegroom and the bride. And so every time you go to a wedding, and every time I do a wedding, I love it because what it is is it's a cosmic play being worked out right in front of your eyes. And I tell the bride and groom, and I don't care where they are spiritually, even if they're two non-believers and they're coming together, I say, you are depicting a cosmic celebration, and you have no idea of the ramifications of it. But here's what it looks like. Ladies, what color is a normal uh, wedding gown? White, correct? Why? 
because every woman who wears white is absolutely impure and never done anything wrong, correct? <laughs> if that was the case, they should, no way. So, why does she wear white? Because she's representing something. And the bridegroom, the groom who is standing up front, is representing someone. He is playing a part. And when he stands here, he is saying, I am taking the part today of Jesus Christ. I'm standing in the place of Jesus Christ in this dramatic cosmic drama that's playing out. And I'm going to stand here. And as my bride comes down the aisle towards me, she shouldn't be wearing white because she's messed up and she's sinned. But here's the beauty. When she comes up here, it'd almost be better if there was a way to do it, that she could start out in a different color dress. And as she's walking down the aisle, it begins to change. And when she comes and she stands with the bridegroom and holds his hands, it's pure white. Because he's saying this, I make you white as snow. Because I marry you. Because I make vows to you to be your husband and to be faithful to you and to love only you. Because I, the ultimate groom, come and take you into my love, take you into my relationship, into my heart. I take you and all of your blemishes are gone and I see you only as pure and white as snow. <laughs> it's all part... <laughs> God's plan is, yes, he changes us radically in that. His plan is that he changes us radically in that way. And the first thing that you have to say and to know about and to understand this festal joy is this. You're not adequate to walk down the aisle and to stand and marry the Son of God. But he says this, it's through my adequacy and it's through the fact that I purify you in my hour that you get to be my bride forever. Remember your wedding day. Erase whatever the arguments you've had over the last years. Erase the difficulties that are there. And just remember for a moment your wedding day. It was a good day, wasn't it? Oh, I still remember seeing Lisa coming down. We didn't have a, uh, a center aisle at our church. And so she had to come out of a door over there. And then she had to kind of come back around the side. And then she had to come back. And I'm standing over here. And I get to watch her for a really long time. And it's just, oh, there she is. Who do you watch when you go to a wedding? You know who I like to watch? It's the groom. And in our old church where we were, there wasn't a center aisle. And so the groom would always be sort of standing over here and the aisles over there. And he would look at me like, what do I do? Because everybody's standing up and blocking his view. And I'm like, do whatever you want to do. He goes, I want to go stand over there. I'm like, go stand over there. And he goes over here. And he comes and he stands right in front of his bride as she's coming down. And she's filled with joy. And he's filled with joy. And that's the part that Jesus is trying to teach us here in this. If you come to me and let me purify you. If you come to me and quit trying to save yourself, if you quit trying to put on white dresses yourself and white tuxedos yourself and quit trying to purify yourself and just drink the wine that I give you, if you would just drink of me and allow me to wash you clean and allow me to be your sanctification, allow me to be your heart, then you will experience a joy and a festal joy that will never diminish over the years because I'm your groom and I'll always always be with you.
Isn't that an awesome picture? And he did it in the context of a Jewish wedding, which was the biggest celebration around. He didn't do it in one of our somber old Presbyterian ones, or like, well, you know, or one that goes, well, you know, you can't drink in the church. The policies are that. It's this. It's like, oh, we've missed the whole point. The point is the celebration here and the joy that comes in this. And Jesus is saying this. I'm your joy. Keep coming back to me and letting me remind you of who you are. Come back to me whenever you're feeling doubt. Whenever the world tells you, woman, that you are ugly, that you aren't beautiful, uh, that age has started to take its effect, come back to me and let me remind you that I made you and that you're beautiful and that you're perfect. Men, every day when you feel like you don't have what it takes, that you feel inadequate and, you're, and you just feel that, that that drive is gone and that you wonder if the younger guys behind you are going to overtake you or you wonder if you have anything left, your groom, and I know that's hard for us as men to get, but your groom is saying, come back to me and let me remind you that you have what it takes because I dwell in you. That I love you and I've committed myself to you and I will never leave you or forsake you. I will love you, love you, love you. And it will, I can tell you this, there are four of the greatest days of my life. It was my wedding day and the birth of my three sons. But I have to say my wedding day trumps them all. Your wedding day with Christ should trump them all as you come and he fills you with this joy. We need to be a church that celebrates stuff like that. That we come back and we celebrate what has happened to us in Christ Jesus together. Because most of, if not all, of the wedding receptions that I've been to have been an awful lot of fun. There's dancing and there's music and there's laughter and there's the regaling of stories and there's looking to the future and there's hope and there's celebration and i love at the very end of it so often as the guests have left many many times it's just a few of the family members especially the father of the bride or or the groom's parents and they sit and they just think what a great event we just had and you know every wedding that you go to I hope will spur you on to this. One day, one day, you get to go be at another wedding. He says, all those who believe in me get to come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And that's going to be a good day, folks. That's going to be a good party. So here's my encouragement to you. And I'm going to get misquoted and I'm probably going to get in trouble. But here it is. Christians should know and party better than anybody else in the world. Is that not true? So, what I want to know about our church is, are you ready to go party? Are you ready? Because in Nehemiah, there's this great story in Nehemiah. The people came under the judgment of God's word, and the teachers and the priests have been preaching it. And the people were like, oh, no, this is overwhelming. Oh, my gosh, I'm unworthy. And they said, well, you've missed it. There's one who's going to come and purify you from that. Now go. This is not a day of mourning. This is a day of joy. Now go and eat the fatted portions and drink the best of the wines and give to those who have nothing. But remember today and celebrate it. That's how we should constantly celebrate. Enjoy the best. But remember those who don't have. 
and joy and bring them in to the festival party with you. But always doing it in a way that honors the Lord of the dance, folks. So put down that next drink if it's one too many. Don't drive home if it's been one too many. Show the world how to party and how to celebrate in the context of the Lord of the dance. And say, we want to enjoy you, God. And we're going to enjoy you in the way that we were designed to enjoy you. So go. Wouldn't that be fun for our church to be known that way? Now you're terrified because you've been taught most of your lives, oh, if I feel good, that's probably a bad thing. <laughs> I'm just supposed to serve Jesus, Bill. I'm not supposed to feel good about it. I mean, it's, I mean plenty of you remind me of that every week. Thanks for a good sermon. I feel terrible now. Okay, if that's what it takes to get you to feel good is to feel terrible. I don't understand it, but I want you to understand this. It's okay to feel good. It's okay to enjoy and to celebrate life. Just do it in light of the picture that's been given to you of your Savior who said this, in order for you to experience incredible joy, I had to experience incredible agony so that my joy could be complete. The God of the universe has tied his joy to yours. And he will not experience full joy until all of his children are home and are around his table and around his banquet feast. And then the God of this universe will experience full joy again. But not until then. So let's do this. Let's honor our God today by living a joyful life, remembering who we are and how we got there. He's the Lord of the dance. He's the Lord of the feast. Go experience his festal joy. Let's pray.